0: Welcome to Episode 2 of the Knowledge Wonderland Podcast. I am Mark Ambinder from Los Angeles. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I guess by us, I mean myself and the trillions of microbic bacteria that line my gut. Today, we're going to talk about Michigan. I'm going to give you a master class in Donald Trump. Uh, and then I'm going to try to explain the arcane delegate selection rules of the Republican Party and, and give you my best guess at what might happen at a contested convention. Right now are the shouts of joy, the squeals, and the echoes from last night's earthquake — I'll say it's an earthquake — in Michigan, Bernie Sanders defeating Hillary Clinton in a state that she should have won. In retrospect, it's easy to talk about the reasons why she didn't, and we will. Um, we're going to spend a little more time talking about Donald Trump, but I want to get into Michigan first. There are bound to be misinterpretations and overinterpretations. Now if my speech sounds a little silly, if my R's are not as well articulated today, it's because I had dental work yesterday. Uh, my lovely dentist who listens to this podcast um, pricked me with about seven needles and, uh, well, my mouth is about as painful as Marco Rubio's campaign spin right now. First Michigan. 50-50 basically. Bernie Sanders getting a delegate win there. Much needed delegate win. Sixty-three delegates to Hillary Clinton's, I believe fifty-five. Uh, but overall, all the states last night, Hillary Clinton, once again, more people voted for Hillary Clinton last night than Bernie Sanders. Overall, Hillary Clinton will win more delegates because she gets a net twelve what, twenty she gets a net of twenty-seven out of out of Mississippi. She's about halfway. To the threshold for winning the Democratic nominee, for winning the Democratic nomination, she is still the most likely Democratic nominee. Bernie Sanders will stay in the race for a long time. The longer Bernie Sanders stays in the race, the better Hillary Clinton will become, the better Hillary Clinton gets as a general election candidate. And I think last night proves it. Look, Michigan is the state where the worst word you can utter is NAFTA. NAFTA is an albatross that hangs around the neck of any Democrat whose last name is Clinton even though Hillary Clinton had very little to do with it. In fact, as Lawrence O'Donnell pointed out last night on MSNBC, Hillary Clinton didn't really want to have anything to do with NAFTA because at the time, during her her husband's administration, she was worried that it would tie up Senate committee work on her health care initiative. She was right, by the way. Michigan Democrats and Democratic-leading independents, white working-class voters, blame trade agreements for exporting their jobs overseas, for a decline in their safety and security, for the a decline in the reliability of their pensions for these enormous economic transformations we've been seeing over the past 20 years. Not necessarily accurately, but this is what's in their memory. This is what's in the core of of their hard drives. And Bernie Sanders tapped into it. Democrats are learning that the outsider anti-establishment populism that has beset the Republican Party is not a party-specific phenomenon. However, Overinterpreting these results is dangerous. In one week, we will likely be saying what we said before Michigan, which is that Hillary Clinton is on track to win the Democratic nomination and to do so handily. Last night's loss points to her vulnerabilities among white working class voters who don't trust her directly, don't believe that she is a reformed free trader and wanna send a message to the powers that be in Washington that they're fed up. Conventional democratic economic policy that like Republican economic policy just hasn't figured out how to close that massive gap between productivity increases since 1980 and stagnant wages. So people feel like they're working a lot harder for a lot less, and the people at the top are getting a lot more. The great irony in Michigan, of course, is that no state perhaps has benefited more directly from President Obama's fiscal policy interventions, the auto bailout, bailout of Chrysler being the main example of that. It goes back once again to the apparent trading of places within the Democratic Party. There's still a lot of white working class Democrats or people who lean Democrats in states like Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin. They're affiliated with labor unions or they were affiliated with labor unions. They do blue collar work. But the Democratic Party seems increasingly designed to appeal to an entirely new slice of the electorate. Younger voters, African Americans, Hispanic voters. Yes, younger voters supported Bernie Sanders. The point here isn't to say that there's a direct overlap. It is to say, though, that the party, the Democratic Party, hasn't fully cottoned on to the idea that the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare or the economic recovery initiatives represented fundamentally policies designed to reduce this massive economic anxiety for the middle class, and I think even some Democrats have internalized the sense that those policies were designed to benefit particular democratic constituencies. I think with, even within the Democratic Party, there are latent anxieties that play off of cultural, social, and racial insecurities, and which and which can be awoken with the right combination of gravely voiced populism and brio, uh, and in some ways. The conflict really isn't new at all, right? This cohort of enthusiastic, idealistic, educated, young liberals, polyglot, who want to be on the right side of history, who are manifestly skeptical of agreements signed in Washington, who tend to be economically more protectionist, who really like Bernie Sanders' message, who believe that an unadulterated expression of liberal economic values will convince a majority of voters if only that expression is unadulterated enough. And there are others who believe that supporting Bernie Sanders is a good way to hold powerful interest in the Democratic Party accountable. Interests that have not been corrupted by big money. When Bernie Sanders talks about the influence of money in politics, I tend to roll my eyes, but I'm, I'm not right. Bernie Sanders is right. I was in Washington for a long time there's a lot of nuance on the issue. When you're outside Washington, you don't see the nuance. And again, I think you're right here. I think the nexus of corruption is there. I think Bernie Sanders articulates it clearly. And I think this resonates with a lot of voters. So it does not surprise me at all that Bernie Sanders has managed to put together a coalition of younger voters, millennials, really educated Democrats, and in many in many cases, white working class voters. It does surprise me because, of course, this is an inversion from what we saw in 2008 when Hillary Clinton was the lunch pail Democrat and Barack Obama was representing this, this heterogeneous Democratic Party, the Democratic Party of the future. Now, this pales in comparison to what's happening on the Republican side. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. And so now I want to give a masterclass in Donald Trump. I did a a Quora session this morning about politics. I intended to take questions on anything, but by far, most of the questions were about Donald Trump. So let me read you just some of the questions. Is Trump's rise an historical anomaly, if not, what are the best analogues? Has the media made mistakes in how they've covered Donald Trump? Why did the media miss? or underestimate the rise of Donald Trump so badly? Why is Trump's Teflon so strong? Why don't his supporters care about Trump University? Trump, Trump, Trump. What is what is negative partisanship? How has Trump's mastery of social media affected voter sentiment? Um, these, are all, these are all excellent questions. And the number of people who signed on to them just jumped last night. After that, what was it, 50-minute infomercial for his delicious $50 steaks, his vodka, which actually isn't his vodka, it's uh, vodka that a that, uh, company bought from someone else, you know, put his name on, which is something Donald Trump does a lot. Donald Trump is a creature of his time, and his rise is not an historical anomaly. I mean, it's, it's an historical moment. Um, but look, the rise of an outsider who is giving voice to just this unbelievably persistent anxiety and political imp- impotence that... Is driving modern conservatism predictable? That this outsider would have a mastery of the, the the technology and the media mores of the time, predictable. You know that America has has a latent streak of authoritarianism. That a lot of white working class voters, you know, ha- have have genes that can be turned on by certain developments in the world and and certain rhetoric, and start producing these proteins of racial and ethnic difference and anxiety kind of course through their veins at certain moments, that's also predictable. And certainly that, you know, these genes could be activated by by the right messenger. Now, what we didn't expect was that Donald Trump would be the avatar of this movement. I mean, he has no credentials whatsoever to be a member of the conservative movement. He was and may still be a New York liberal until he decided that it would be unprofitable to do so. Um, He still is in favor of big government, doesn't seem to care about Supreme Court justices. He just mouths words. I mean, has he even read about Common Core that he says is awful? Common Core's hard. Does he know about Common Core? He finds common cause with folks who hate the media, but boy, does he crave the media's attention. This is an amazingly interesting person. What's also very unique about this moment is that the Republican Party has been taken over by people who don't think that its insistence on ideological purity has, has served it well. But Trump is not making this up, I don't think. I think this is all just – well, let me, let, me amend, let, me, let me amend that. He is making it up, but he's not making it up in advance. What needs to be done in the moment is what Trump can do. So one thing to ask yourself here, is Trump's new incarnation closer to where the Republican Party really has been over these past 20 years? You know, not, not the Republican Party that, that holds the conventions and, and pays consultants hundreds of millions of dollars a year – but the, the body of voters represented by the Republican Party who oppose international trade agreements, very skeptical about a party being way too close to big business, particularly with regards to immigration. We think the party, frankly, sold them down the river on immigration and will sell them down the river who don't even trust Paul Ryan. That's where Trump is. That's where 60 to 70 percent of voters are, at least so far as the exit polls go other question about historical uniqueness, how acid is this campaign? I mean, it's, we're talking about genitalia size and Donald Trump is kind of a, you know, an insult comic. He's like the Jackie, the Joker and Martling of politics. But look, by the standards of history, eh, not that bad. I mean, you're not, we're not closing down newspapers. We're not passing alien and sedition acts. We're not, you know, no big sex scandals, not not really implying that somebody had an out of wedlock child. Um, there's some, you know, minor. This candidate might be gay. This candidate's having, but that's that's all on the all on the outside of it. So it's actually not that acrimonious by historical standards. I, I, I do think that by historical standards, the level of policy talk, oh, it's it's inch deep, and it is shallower than it's ever been. So don't mistake shallow with coarseness, but it is shallow, very very shallow. The thing to know about Donald Trump is that, oh yeah, a lot of people who vote for him may have questions about him. They, they do question what the hell Trump University actually was. But the more Trump keeps winning, that's the core of his brand, the more they see him as a winner, and that's really all they need to hear. The more he pisses off the Republican establishment, the more they like him. That's simple formulation. The more he drives the media crazy, the more they like him. That's as simple an explanation as I can give for the Donald Trump phenomenon. Now, nationally, you're starting to see some softness in his numbers. Some of that is because people who decided to vote for Donald Trump decided very early in the race that they were just going to send a a message and have stuck with him and are in lockstep with his mind. And and these voters are the voters you want to understand. I mean, they have legitimate reasons to loathe the GOP and the media. So in some ways they disregard the attacks so long as he keeps winning and winning moments. But looked at it from another perspective, Trump does have a ceiling. 45 to maybe 53% of the Republican electorate in any state. You know, if you're going to vote for anyone else, you might as well vote for somebody else. Trump's message is vulnerable. It, 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 he's a bully, but he's a soft bully. You know, he's a bully who says he has who has your back. He can beat his chest the loudest. That's certainly It seems to be the source of his strength. But when he's attacked as a liar and a con, he loses control. He looks like a buffoon. His numbers soften, and he loses strength. So Trump University is, to many of its former students, transparently a con, and it makes Trump vulnerable. He's been exposed as someone who lies, changes his mind frequently, although I don't think that's that bad of a trait. But as the story is unfolded, someone who has cheated these students as well. A cheat. And remember, a cheat is what those Wall Street robber barons are. The Wall Street robber barons that Donald Trump, who lives nearby, but still, Donald Trump rails against. A cheat is what politicians are. So the more Donald Trump looks like a cheat, the softer his support becomes. The Emperor has no clothes. I see that the Emperor has no clothes. But I'm a creature of the Washington liberal establishment. I am. So I see it from that sense. And the more I see it from that way, the more people who are inclined to oppose my entire worldview see Trump as, in some sense, a Christ like figure who will save them from people like me. And as someone who's watching the race, I got to understand that. Finally, I want to end by, by talking a little bit about. Ohio Governor John Kasich, who has been one of the smarter candidates to date. He said some pretty weird things about encryption. So let's put that aside. But tactically, he's been very smart. A lot of speculation about why he has not joined attacks on Donald Trump. People say, well, because he wants to be Trump's vice president, somehow he'll be offered up as a consensus, I don't know, sacrificial lamb at the convention, become Trump's vice president help Trump regain support among Republican women with whom he does absolutely awful with, Carol as, he would say, as uh, Donald Trump would say. I think Kasich is smarter than that. Kasich is the governor of a state with a lot of voters who Donald Trump appeals to directly. Kasich knows that these voters are hurting. Kasich is not going to insult these voters. Tactically, if Kasich is to be a consensus choice of anybody, whether it's second ballot of Republican nomination, if he's offered up, if he offers himself up, As a party leader and a party uniter, the worst thing he could have done is alienate A, Donald Trump, B, Donald Trump supporters. So it has less to do directly with Donald Trump and more to do directly with John Kasich, A, being governor and understanding these voters, and B, acting tactically because John Kasich doesn't want to be vice president, doesn't want to run with Donald Trump because I don't think he thinks Donald Trump can win. I think John Kasich wants to be president. And that does bring us to what the heck is going to happen at the Republican convention so i want to explain as simply as i can what a brokered or contested convention is contested convention simple a candidate doesn't get 1237 delegates goes to different ballots first ballot is a majority ballot you got to win if you win a majority of delegates you win more than 1237 on the first vote you are the nominee and then you could accept the nomination or reject it. Um, a broker convention, brokering is a is a term of art. It just means that people get together in a in a in a, in a back room uh, or or in this case a basement uh, of the of, uh, of, of a of a of an arena in Cleveland and decide who's going to win and somehow expect delegates to go along with that or change the rules of the Republican Party to allow them to anoint the nominee. Brokered convention not likely, contested convention more likely. Most of the delegates are bound, which means that they are obligated to vote for the candidate who sent them to the convention. There is a caveat here, which is that the binding doesn't take place at the time of the vote. Most of the binding takes place at state and county conventions in a couple of weeks or months from now. So does that mean, and I've asked this and I haven't had good answers in many of the campaigns, that. They will try and influence those state and county conventions to elect people who are supposedly nominally Trump delegates based on the delegates that Trump gets to send to these conventions, but wind up leaving as delegates pledged to somebody else. Those shenanigans can go on because state rules differ quite considerably about what it means to be a pledged or bound delegate. And Donald Trump's lack of organization in these states and the haphazard nature of his campaign campaign. Might hurt him here. I don't think this is really a scenario to tinker too much with a delegate tally. I just don't think that's going to happen. But if the margins are close, you might see some shenanigans. Now, in order to even be considered a potential candidate for the nomination, you have to have won seven other states. For John Kasich, that would be Ohio next week and seven other states because of what's called Rule 40 which was put in to ensure that at a convention that is contested, some fringe candidate can't win. So you have to win at least eight states. Uh, But, of course, part of the compromise that included, at least this latest round of rules that included the imposition of Rule 40, included a clause that said that Republicans at the beginning, in fact, they can do this anyway, they can change the rules right before the convention at a meeting of the rules committee, to do whatever they want at the convention. The rules in place for the convention will be the rules in place at the end of the rules committee meetings before the convention. They might be totally different than the rules now. So Donald Trump needs to have really, really good lawyers. He needs to get those lawyers represented on the rules committee meeting, or they might try to screw him out of a nomination. Again, hard to see how that would work in this era when Republicans are in massive revolt against their party. But then again, you have people here clinging to power. So you have have people clinging to power desperately on one side, and on the the other side, you have people desperate to obtain power. So I don't know what the hell's going to happen. First ballot, right? As I said, majority ballot, in theory, it should reflect the aggregate or average vote preferences you'd be able to count. But Again, reality, it might not because states can decide what pledged or bound delegates mean. But after the first ballot, the remaining candidates, well, it's a free-for-all. It becomes caucus-like in the sense that at that point, people are free to try and put forth for the nomination the, the candidates that they want, the candidates that are remaining. If there are three or four remaining, any combination, president, vice president, vice president, any combination is fair game at that point. And again, we don't know exactly what the rules are going to be. This is one reason why Mitt Romney is quietly doing get out the vote work on behalf of a couple of different candidates, because the rules rules committee could completely get rid of Rule 40. You might have six or seven candidates at this contested stage. My gut, which often does fail me in these cases, says that the person who goes into the convention with a clear majority of the delegates is going to win. That person, I believe... Is Donald Trump. Well, that is the Knowledge Wonderland podcast. Thank you so much for uh, for letting me yell at you for about 20 minutes. Do me one favor, though. Go to iTunes, subscribe, maybe write a review. That'd be great. That's all you have to do. It takes two minutes. Please do that. I'll bring at least one episode a week. I have an episode that's going to drop on Sunday where I interview Emily Zoltan Gillette, who is the world's first credited crowdfunding fulfillment producer on a movie kind of a different change of pace but it's a it's it's a really interesting interview and she's a wonderful person just do that one favor for me though. go to itunes subscribe if you want to support me you want to support this podcast check out our page at patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash mark ambender you can support me there also go to knowledgewonderland.com you can check out more information about me and the podcast Henshi Hikari is our producer. Tintin B provides the music, which you can find more of, at facebook.com slash Tintin B. I am Mark Amador, and this is Knowledge Wonderland.